Hi, this is Brenna. And this is Corey. And welcome to another Queen Spotlight Session podcast. This podcast features Quaff alumni who have built successful careers in finance and explores their experiences that have ultimately landed them where they are today. Queen's University Alternative Asset Fund, or Quaff, is currently Canada's only student-run alternative asset investment fund. Managed exclusively by Queen's students and overseen by faculty and industry professionals, the Quaff portfolio holds both public and private alternative investment strategies. Quaff is designed to provide students with hands-on experience focused on providing exposure to the investment industry, alternative strategies, and portfolio management. Through the engagement of alumni, current members, and industry professionals, Quaff has established itself as an invaluable educational opportunity for Queen's students. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of professional services and should not be construed as investment or tax advice. The content is not meant to be a substitute for professional advice and users should seek the advice of an appropriate professional advisor. Quaff, hosts, or guests may hold positions in companies discussed. All opinions and outlooks expressed by any and all of the podcast hosts and featured guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect that of Quaff, Queens, employers, or related parties. Today we are very thrilled to be joined by Jeremy Yumel, who is a Masters of Finance graduate from 2018. And this is a name that many of you will be very familiar with because he has been very involved with both Quaff as well as the Masters of Finance program since his graduation. To say that it's been overdue to have Jeremy as a featured guest on this podcast is an understatement and we are so grateful to him for taking time from his busy weekends to spend with us to share his story. There aren't very many people who will be able to eloquently sprinkle poetry and Mark Twain quotes into a podcast that is focused primarily on finance and investing. So for anyone who loves literature in addition to finance and all things investing, you will really enjoy our discussion. So without any further ado, please enjoy our conversation with Jeremy Umel. So we're just going to dive in and uh, start with a little bit more about you. You have a really unique journey. Um, You were a literature student who stumbled into asset management and you described it to us as being an unlikely journey to Toronto. So if you don't mind uh, starting us off from the beginning. When I was thinking about this, I think the perfect word to describe how I got here is it's more of a, I meandered through, li- through life. It's like, a, <laughs> there's, it's not a linear path, like, you know, staggering, borderline drunk-like from one point to another, tracing it back in university. I originally wanted to be a literature student as opposed to what you guys are doing, you know, active in investment clubs. I was active in creative writing club. So instead of analyzing companies, I was analyzing poetry and short stories hoping to improve you know, my writing. And just generally, I just love literature and the different art forms that comes with it. But then, you know, midway through university, finance has always been in the background of my life because my mother was a tax consultant for a relatively large distressed debt hedge fund that was operating in the Philippines back then. You know, we, we go back and forth and uh, I realized that around that time, I was become, becoming a bit you know, try to be, be a bit more practical with how uh, I can pursue a sort of creative career while at the same time being a productive member of society and being you know practical with how I want to achieve my different goals, not just writing, but also traveling the world, exploring and all that stuff. So I started taking more finance courses and accounting courses and right there and there, you know, in my early days there, I decided 
I'd never, I don't really want to be an accountant, nor I want to follow the typical corporate path. And that's what really made me focus on investing. And like what most people, I started reading on all the greats, Warren Buffett, Ben Graham, everyone starts there, Peter Lynch, through different interactions with different professionals. Uh, I read more about the, the hedge fund guys, the market wizards books was very pivotal for me. And that went on and I finished with a degree in finance. I spent a year in Deutsche Bank's middle office operating in the Philippines. But even through that time, I've always wanted to, I've always been learning more and more about how it is to manage money and how to make money in capital markets, because I really think that's a very creative way to live your life because it's not a fixed process that just slowly evolves with the time. You actually have to be creative and it's it's part art and part science. Uh, I encounter and use that phrase a lot in finance and in asset management. So I became closer there. And at some point I moved to the sell side equity research in one of the brokerage firms in the Philippines. But at that time, I immediately you know, realized that the markets there aren't as sophisticated nor as exciting as the ones I was reading about here in North America or in Europe that you, know, you have all these big global multinationals and you have this is the epicenter of all the developments, not just in technology, but medicine or even industrial activity, right? So I'm like, I got to get it on there. And then I would say my family has always been mavericks in the sense that a lot of my family members are all over the world. And I had the option of, you know, I could go to Virginia or South Carolina where there's a lot of my family members are. And I, and I really want that because like, you know, I want to forge my own path. So, all right, let's do Toronto. I've been reading good stuff about Canada. Oddly enough, I followed Canadian culture to the okay extent growing up. So I settled there and I was looking for the different programs and I found Queen's Amphin because it hit the sweet spot of what I needed. And Quaff was a big magnet for the program, to be perfectly honest, because I saw all the all those materials and just reading up on Quaff and I'm like, yeah, I need I get to learn about different asset classes and strategies. And that's exactly what makes me excited about asset about managing money. What yeah. was the part of the journey that you found um, particularly challenging or what's the part that you learned a lot from and that you took a lot out of? I would say the biggest part was when I moved to sell-side research. Um, it was at RCBC Securities, which is kind of like, it's one of the bigger banks, but not that big. It's kind of like the equivalent of Laurentian or National Bank here in Canada. So it's part of the top 10, but in the middle bracket. The, the thing about in Asia is capital markets are small enough, but they're still okay. They still let you do the actual work of researching companies, but the way they distribute the tasks to you know the, the analysts and associates, it's more, I would say, ad hoc with respect to how the research head thinks about it. And my research head was a very sharp guy and he figured, well, I don't really need that many people in the team. So we were a very lean team. We were literally three people uh, covering roughly 80 stocks in the Philippine Stock Exchange and had to get up to speed very quickly. And at that time, it's not uncommon for an analyst to cover different industries. It's not like here where you know, you're tech. You're actually, it's not even tech. You're covering SaaS or software. And some other guy covers internet. Some other guy covers biotech. Some other guy covers medtech. Me, I had to cover like five utility companies three conglomerates that own some utilities, some property management, some banks, uh, a, a water utility, a coal miner, a nickel miner, and a port company. So it was all over the place, right? Um, it, it really challenged me to learn quickly and learn security analysis. I need to learn different companies and get better at security analysis at the same time. So that was very challenging. And the thing is with Southside, 
you need to ba- you need to be diplomatic with how you present yourself to not just your clients but to also your stakeholder companies because you never really want to be blacklisted or you don't want to I would say offend them too much. Um, it's it's part sell side is you know you're selling things, you're marketing things, and for you to sell effectively, you need to manage all your relationships. And I had to learn that rather quickly, and that was a big shock for me because I've always been more of a I would say someone who's more of like a craftsman in that, you know, in writing, it's just you in a piece of paper. And I thought security analysis, oh, okay, I, I print a 10K, I, you know, crunch Excel model, and then I present my work. But in sell side, there's the, you know, people aspect. And it's not just actually just sell side, also buy side. There's a big component of that where you need to also tailor your messaging and how you communicate with your team about your ideas. Those were the big challenges for me. Any company is divided between three people. That's a lot. So yeah. You created a very strong work ethic very quickly. Yeah. It, it was had to. And then it, it, we were a fun bunch because our, our research head was a pretty senior guy. He was very tenured. He had like 30 years plus experience in the industry. And we were relatively fresh out of school, fresh out of university. And then, so yeah, it was like sink or swim. Like, here, okay, here are your companies, read up on them, then get back to me with reports. <laughs> and, you know, it's up to you to do, to maximize that autonomy given to you. The, the thing is like, there's a lot of companies, but uh, once you get the hang of them, they're very simplistic and they're all, and it's not like they're cyclical, but it's not like I need to keep track of like, let's say, oh, let's take a medical device company. Oh, okay. Let's, they're working on this type of surgeries. What are the next wave of surgeries they're going to work on here? They're okay. They're planning these properties or these new power plants that will take many years. And yeah, I could just easily model them, but. So I want to ask you a little bit about how the MFIN was a bit of a a perfect balance and a perfect leeway Uh, for you. uh, Could you touch a little bit more about your experience in the MFIN degree? Uh, We were a fun bunch, diverse people, not just of social social backgrounds, but also career backgrounds. And I guess that's what makes the program so rich is because, you know, even even though you guys are at different stages of your career path, uh, your career, in your career, um, you still find a common ground in the education that the program provides. And I really love the Queen's emphasis on teamwork and a team first mentality that has aided me well. I wouldn't say there's a lot, there's one single event that made it for me. It was that through time, I've come to develop deep relationships. Like I, I made a lifelong friends with a couple of, you know, several of my classmates. Uh, I still keep in touch with some of the professors. It's really just a program as more of a platform to develop relationships and answer knowledge. And Quaff is like that, you know, brings that to the next level. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, I know that uh, you were a TA so what was life like yeah. as a TA? Um, as a TA. I, were you a TA uh, only for John? Uh, so I was. Uh, so this is my second year as a TA. First was with just Sean, and then this year it was Sean Cleary and John Aikman at the same time because Sean, you know, he's a very busy man and he's you know doing other initiatives, especially with sustainable finance, right? So I've worked closer with John Aikman this year, and like, look, TA is a great job, especially if you really love the su- the subject that you're helping out with. In this case, I was an equities class, and part of the most rewarding 
there were many there were many rewarding parts of being a TA. Number one is uh, I interact with you know the current students now, and they would challenge me. And what I think it would be, oh, that's you know that's industry practice. That's how I learned it. But then they would also push back to me, and it really brings home to if you teach, you learn twice because you learn first yourself, and you learn how to teach it to, to, to your students. And that really deepens my understanding, and you know improves my understanding overall. Second part would be just being on the other side of learning how to assess other people's work, and I think that's a valuable skill especially as we grow as professionals or as asset managers. Uh, it's not just security analysis, but also management of not just ideas, but also people and talent and being able to you know, digest your work and hopefully give you constructive feedback and guide you towards you know, an improved product. And that's a skill that I really value that the, that the, that the, TA, that the TA role allows me to pursue. You touched on earlier about how Quaff was a big part about yeah. um, your MFIN. So would you tell yeah. us a little bit about why you decided directly to get into Quaff and how your Quaff experience truly impacted uh, your time at Queens and your overall career journey? Yeah. So the first one I've already alluded to that uh, I've read and researched enough on Quaff's reputation and the platform it provides its members and the network it allows you to jumpstart. The second one is, I would say, a bit more practical in the sense that, you know, I'm new to Canada it helped me just learn about the different, you know, the work ethic here, the work culture here, and it helped me, you know, get to know mentors uh, pretty well. It's actual interaction with your work outside of classes in the sense that, okay, uh, I have a deliverable for Sean Cleary or my fixed income professor, and then she'll grade it. But I would argue other than my group at most, and my professor would, there will be the only ones who would see it. Whereas with Quaff, it's a it's a stage for me to bring myself out there, and you know, Quaff really has this you know accommodating culture that yeah, sure, you have an idea, pitch it. I remember in my first I guess networking session, I was talking to some current Quaff people. I think it was Jesse, and he was like, "Oh, you have an idea? Come on, pitch it, pitch it." And we were just like in a in a, in, a, in a bar, right? And I was like, "Oh, okay, nice. It's like a it's like a way for me to test what they really know and get and get feedback for them." And throughout that time, that's always been how I maximize Quaff too. Like as an analyst, I bring ideas to the to my team and to the board and they'll give me feedback. And as when I was helping out as an executive team, here's I think, oh, here's as a team, we could make it better. What do you guys think? And then I'll get feedback from my peers and I get feedback from my from the board members. So it's really that, yeah, that the the team mentality and the network. Definitely. And and I can echo that, you know, you know, along that for myself. When I jumped in, Zvair was the the ranking analyst on on the the thematic group. Brenna jumped in yeah. right from the start with that. Uh, yeah. I've tag team and hitched myself to Brenna, and we'll be doing that for the foreseeable future. I'm sorry, Brenna, <laughs> <laughs> you won't be able to shake me off. I, I've hitched it. I put the yeah. nail in the I put the nail in the wagons. The wagons are hitched. Yeah. Um, so. A lot of people, you know, come into the MFIN and and join Quoth uh, without having necessarily that professional finance experience. Do you think Quoth um, helps people um, w- with respect to gaining a bit of that capital markets uh, experience uh, as a track yeah. record uh, stages? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And even though I entered a bit with some more ex- capital markets experience under my belt, uh, I think. The fact that you're you're able to run through the whole process of idea generation towards idea towards you know investment management when you guys actually put money to work in that idea and watch it through time that really gives anyone who you know with an unconventional or non-capital markets background to really do the job and it's one of the few things 
that one of the few ways I I would say that's institution institutionalized enough because sure you can have you know a bunch of investments investment ideas with your friends you can run your PA but that's your own thing it's not really other people's money on the line it's not you know it's not just you being impacted by your decisions and quaff allows you to do that and at the same time at the, at the same time provides you the support to work on that you know you have member you have you have the management team guiding you through the process you know directing you toward where the time's best spent how you know from model how to interview people how to assess people how to assess investments so yeah i i, I would say i mean if i'm like um of course, this this isn't to say that we're you can get someone from zero to hero with Quaff. You still need, I would say, the fundamental competencies of being able to you know read the math, read the three statements, uh, understand why you know what's the difference between alternative investments and long only. But it's the actual in practice application of those knowledge that Quaff really brings to the next level. Some of the great anecdotes are always surrounding uh, failed stock pitches. Do you have a yeah. failed stock pitch that you can tell us a little bit about? Oh my god, I have a lot. <laughs> um, let me start with my queen. With my, let me start my equity research one. <laughs> so you know, uh, humble brag, I, I actually won that year's stock pitch competition. And the funny thing is that I won, and then my classmates kept teasing me about it the whole the whole year afterwards because they were like, "Yeah, nice call, Jeremy. You should stay in sell side." Because I pitched short caterpillar and then caterpillar was like benefiting from the trump boom and all that stuff and I'm like yeah that's isn't sustainable but then the macro economy just like kept on going and like caterpillar for went from like i think it was like 140 150 and then i pitched short to 100 and then it went to like 250 <laughs> and, then all, and then all my friends they had like you know really good pitches pitch that ultimately worked out and they were like oh yeah nice yeah just tell in Southside Jeremy <laughs> so that yeah that, that one that really strikes me and even then when I reunite with some of my classmates they were like hey yo how, how's, how's Caterpillar going <laughs> so I, that's I one on, I was on an investment club in undergrad and, and yeah. we, we, have, we have a friend like that and we'll, we'll never let him go he, he even posted yeah. on Facebook how you should short Tesla at a hundred dollars and, and we just we still we still rip them for it doesn't matter yeah. what fundamentals say yeah. <laughs> and how good yeah. a pitch yeah and like yeah exactly like you know I, I had all these cool charts from different providers i was like yeah look at china look at mining capex it's not you know you have to look elsewhere but then nope doesn't fucking, doesn't matter <laughs> you can sound as smart as you can do you have a yeah. view on Shopify once upon a time? Uh, yeah. So, oh, that's another failed pitch, actually, <laughs> because I also interned for a boutique research firm here in Toronto. And I initiated, uh, I started that firm's work on Shopify. They have different views on it now. But around that time, and Shopify was new to capital markets, I was pretty bearish because I never really understood how much multiples could expand or how great operate Shopify is. I mean, I have only, I have the utmost respect for them. Yeah, I, my pitch there was like short, short caterpillar around 2018. And of course, from then it proceeded to 10x. So yeah, that was another failed pitch, right? And that's why when I realized that like, you know, bear, bear thesis or short thesis points are generally sound smarter, but that's the thing, right? They just sound smarter. And on the other hand, I would say long or buy theses are simple. In general, that's how you make money. Uh, generally, is 
you know you have a simple idea and just write it to the end so yeah shopify was another was another failure makes me question if i can really short but not to say shorting has been easy in the market like shorting has been difficult Right, just look at GameStop. So, <laughs> yeah, for sure. yeah, yeah. See, it's funny um, that you say that because I was trying really hard to find a company that um, I would do like a short position on because I knew that specifically Sean mentioned like that he liked different yeah. approaches. Like y- yeah. he likes that like kind of like controversial. Like, oh well, you think it's gonna go up? I think it's gonna go down. Yeah, and yeah. I tried really hard, but yeah, I had to go for a company that I really liked, and I did the analysis. Yeah. I was like, no, this is going up. Yeah, I've, I think, you know, looking back and after learning more and talking to smarter people, shorts, you know, there are only two kinds of shorts that I think work out, you know, more often than not. Number one are frauds, but you need a really good skill set to do that. You need to find like the next Enron or the next Valiant, right? Uh, or the next, I don't know, Nicola, <laughs> to use a more recent example. Number two are competition-based shorts. The, a good example would be Grubhub, where... You know, they're in a very competitive market. And the way to put it was like Grubhub was saying, oh, we're disciplined. We're managing our profitability well. And then, you know, that's cool and all, but DoorDash, Uber Eats, and all the other players, like they are hell-bent on gaining market share and they have the capital to burn through. So, you know, good luck with your discipline. You're going to get destroyed. And, you know, there was that, I don't know if you guys saw that day where Grubhub was like, fell off a cliff after they go they after they admitted yeah we're losing this battle <laughs> so yeah competition based shorts or frauds are i think the kinds of shorts that ultimately pan out I've never short on valuation i would say uh, i keep repeating to myself uh, at most just uh, just avoid those stories where you think it's overvalued and you don't know you don't have a sense where that will go do yeah. you think that's a product of the fact that we're in one of the longest running bull markets in, in history? Yeah. So I would say the bull market and the difficulty to short is a byproduct of a more fun of a more, you know, root cause. And that will be almost zero cost of capital, right? And the reason why, and going back to, to, to the Grubhub example, um, Grubhub, you know, in a different lifetime, they would have been the winners, I would say, because, you know, they're disciplined, they planned out perfectly, you know, they're, you know, they have good unit economics. But since you have DoorDash and Uber uh, having like mountains of capital from Sequoia or SoftBank, then, you know, uh, you're going to get destroyed. And it's hard to short those guys because the main holders of that company won't give up. Yeah, definitely. And, and, I, and I appreciate uh, your insight there and for going on that tangent. Um, ton of great points there. Brenna, Brenna clapped, so she agreed. One last point on this. You know, yeah. we're, all, we're all trying to get headhunted coming from our respective yeah. graduate programs uh, or co-op yeah. and, and, and whatnot. How did you get, uh, you know, how, what's your, what would you go about getting companies' attentions? What, what's the potential chance you took along the way and, and, and how did you find it yeah. paid off? Yeah, so I usually give a similar, you know, similar speech to you know the students that have asked me or other people have asked me what's worth for you. And I gotta say, it's really just try to simulate the work on your own. In the sense, uh, I was following companies on the side, not just for school, but on my own for my own interest. Like, and you know, I had my own models. I was you know keeping track of quarterly earnings, the different developments. And just try to keep a mini portfolio of the companies you cover. Not necessarily companies you invest in, but companies you cover. So, you know, it's good that, you know, when you have when you go on a coffee chat and 
you do the typical coffee chat dance. Hey, how are you? What's your journey? All that stuff. And at some point, you try to you know talk about more about current events. And then the person opposing, you know, opposite of you, the industry person would, you know, try to test you out. Obviously, they'll try to size up if you're if you're worth keeping a connection to. And then at that point, what really helps is you can actually talk as if you're doing the job already. And I was following a couple of stocks there. I was following the Canadian Railways because understanding the Canadian Railways really helped me understand the Canadian economy. I, you know, I learned how the different provinces make their money, how they sustain themselves, and that was a good education overall for me. And I was following. Shopify and Dollarama. So yeah, I was just even though I had you know only a novice understanding of how these companies, I was able to show you know I was able to talk about oh you know Canadian National Railway is opening up this new port, you know port of Prince Rupert. You know this can impact volumes so and so. And then oh Shopify is trading at this and interest rates are poised to go up. What do you think? That that I think that has made quite a difference and it's really helpful because. Especially in equity research, some some shops, some groups, when they're interviewing, they immediately they ask for a sample of your work, and you don't want to be caught that oh okay I may I bonded well I made quite a good impression on this person and they're like yeah we're hiring can you give us a sample of your work and you're like caught and like oh I have nothing <laughs> I can't send them anything and I have to rush through it so you, already if you if you have your eyes set on a certain career uh, try to work towards it and try to simulate it. And you, you could do a follow similar approach for investment banking. Uh, you know, just follow deals, try to study deals on your own, right? Like let's say um, you study the Dow DuPont mega merger. Why why was that make sense? What was the flaws in there? So Jeremy, you spent a little bit of time on the sell side in equity research. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and what in particular drew you to what's arguably one of the most uh, difficult areas of capital markets? Yeah. So South side is, I think, where a lot of investors ultimately start with, right? It's not just sell side research, but also sell side investment banking. Before you move on to investing or private equity, you ultimately start as most of us start as investment bankers or sell side research. And it's just such a really good training ground. I know our I know the professions right now aren't as, you know, lustrous or, you know, quote unquote sexy as it was back then. Like people say, oh, you should just go to tech or you could go to consulting. But it's such a great training ground, I would say, uh, sell side equity research or investment banking in the sense that it's high activity high growth and really fast growth and that uh, that that role provides because at such a young age you're given quite the responsibility you're monitoring live multi-million multi-billion dollar companies and you're supposed to opine on them and invest senior people and interact with a lot of smart people and operators and that's just no other background i would say uh gives that kind of platform until even later on, right? Uh, like let's say in consulting, I would say, sure, you do some analysis work, but you never really had to manage your stakeholders that much or you know, external stakeholders that much until later on in your career. When you're an analyst, in my, in my case, uh, I had to like in my second week interview the CFO of the biggest electrical utility in my country. And that was such a daunting but exciting prospect for me. And yeah. to speak yeah. to the craftsmanship of writing a report, you really got to leverage that while you were on that sell side. 
Yes, yes, no, that's a good point. And follow up on that, it's not just you, not just how you interact with you know your companies or your clients, but also the apprenticeship model of most sell side, especially in research. Uh, I worked directly with you know my head of research was a really brilliant guy, with almost more than three decades of industry experience, and I get to learn from him how to communicate my thoughts clearly, how to structure your arguments, how to think about the second or derivative implications of a company's decision. So why are they opening up this new coal facility? Why is that? And what do you think could go wrong? What do you think could go right? What do you think is the market appreciating? I guess that's part of the great training ground is having an apprenticeship model under such great mentors. Can you tell us a little bit about the transition into buy side, which is where you are now? And how did that happen? And just tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. So I met my current team right after I was finished up in Queens and I joined them as the, their first investment analyst as they were building up, growing their portfolio. And the transition, I would say the transition for me being to a complete outsider to capital markets, to sell side, and the transition from sell side to buy side is the former was harder, but not that's not the discount what I had to go through to to have that real investor mindset. And I'm still a student investor for all intents and purposes. I'm not saying I'm a virtuoso of any sorts. So the transition was, you know, I need to, I would say I had to learn and really internalize my team's philosophy on how to make money in the markets. How was your team's approach to analyzing companies? What the team's approach to managing a portfolio? And it goes beyond the technical competencies that we tend to learn in school and that you tend to really learn in sell side. I, I guess on that, you know, what, what, are, what are some trends that you're noticing on the buy side and on the sell side? And, and, and how do you see those? changing in, in the long term? Yeah. So let's start with the sell side first, because uh, I would say I would have much to add there, but I'll tell you what, you know, from a casual observer now, sell side now structurally is a bit more challenged because there's just, you know, there's MIFID in Europe where the whole unbundling of what research really sells to you is happening. Is happening sorry. And uh, here in North America, sell side now, you, you need to really work to differentiate your franchise as a sell side associate and a sell side analyst. And you learn that by, you really need to do deeper work. People, I would say as a buy sider, unless there's something really insightful about the quarter, uh, I wouldn't really care about your latest earnings call or latest quarterly call. It's about the deeper work. Ask structural questions, you know, industry primers. Those are the kinds of work that I really value sell side for. And you need to learn all the additional ways to generate value-add insights, right? Like using alternative data. You know, there are some MMA people here. That's a big value now, right? A lot of big sell-side firms now, they incorporate alternative data into their analysis. And that kind of stuff wasn't talked at all when I was trying to get into there. Like I never knew Python would be table stakes for a sell-side associate now, or even BQL, because you're, you, know, you have access to all this kind of data, intra-quarter data that really helps flesh out your recommendations better. So that's the sell side. Buy side, it's that plus learning uh, with your team how to really differentiate itself. Because a lot of us has learned about the glory days of like hedge funds, the big trades back in the 80s, 90s. And more and more finance is becoming matured. It's becoming more of a solved industry. 
Like that's why there's a big rise of factor investing. Oh, and you know, I'm a big pension plan. Do I really need to find five different unique investors or actually just long quality? Long quality stocks, long Microsoft, long blue chip, every you know, long Visa, long Mastercard. But you really need to work how to differentiate your approach as a buy side as well, and that looks for what your team is doing differently and how are you selling that differently. It continues to evolve, and it's becoming more of it's becoming more competitive. And the rise of alternative data is one of the key structural shifts there. And the second one is the rise of factor investing for the buy side because you really need to solve that. If you're like a typical quality or value mandate, I can get through that. I can get that exposure through an ETF. So why would I, a pension or endowment manager, give you a couple million dollars for that, right? You know, yeah. there, there's someone who a uh, few of us have uh, uh, interacted with and um, you know, they, yeah. they, they always say that that sell-side research is dead. <laughs> I think we know the first one. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. you know, you know, sh- shall not be named. Um, <laughs> but do you have an opinion on this? Like, what are some variables yeah. you see evolving that might put buy side yeah. and sell side roles at risk? Uh, I really, you know, uh, I really respect this guy. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I think the function of sell side and buy side still goes back to the question of does discretionary investing still work? It's a more philosophical question, I would argue. Um, Why not let rules-based, factor-based investing, quantitative-based investing, let the robots take over? Why not, right? And I would say there will always be room for discretionary investing because the markets are still irrational. Like you can hit me all you want with your you know efficient market hypothesis, but the fundamental actors of the market are people, and people are you know unpredictable, irrational. They're rational for the most part, but I would say half the time we're irrational, and those irrationalities create opportunities, and that can never be modeled by a computer unless you know your Renaissance technologies. But that's a different story. Yeah, discretionary investing will always have a place in the markets. You always need skilled fundamental analysts and managers navigating how the world evolves because the world evolves in a non-linear way, right? And you know, so many recent examples. Back then we had a trade war. We actually didn't have a trade war. We had the scare of a trade war. And there are so many opportunities you could have taken advantage during that scare. And you know, the machines failed managing COVID. And it's really the discretionary managers who was able to, you know, had the fortitude to really position themselves and manage through the crisis that emerged victorious, even in such a challenging time. So why sell side and buy side won't be dead is because fundamental research will always thrive, I would say. And sell side is an input to that. It's just that the current sell side we know, like, oh, okay, we recommend Apple because they're going to have a good quarter. I think those are going away. You need to be more bespoke and be more or insightful with what you sell. Like, okay, we have this data repository. We're cross-referencing that with our fundamental analysis, our industry contacts. That's a big thing that people underestimate sell side is because the sell side have created uh, such a network of industry experts and they're, they're like a nexus of the discussions. I personally love in talking to sell side about hmm, what, are, what else are you hearing on this name? What is the other trades thing about this name? And then that informs me as a buy side investor. Because we're on the topic, I wanted to ask yeah. you, in your career, you're prob- you probably have done a bunch of work on like a company yeah. or a stock that yeah. you really believed in. And then yeah. you had to kind of communicate that idea up the chain. Yeah. Say that they didn't agree with your idea. 
uh, and you did 20, 30 hours of work. How do you kind of internalize that, deal with that, and move forward? You know, in my my earlier encounters with that kind of decisions with my team, it it, it is a bummer. There's no other way to put it. Like, you've invested in, you've grown attached to this company, but... Um, sometimes that's just not there's just this one thing that your team uh, can't get around with or it's just not the best use of capital for the portfolio at that time Uh, the team reason I would say and the second reason why I've learned to not feel so bad about it and actually just embrace it as part of the process is research is never wasted. One thing you learn about a company, you know, creates another node in your mental library of your knowledge and your wisdom about the markets. And that helps you later on. And it just compounds over time, right? It's not just money that compounds over time. It's our knowledge, it's our skill set. And going through the research, you know, just grows that library, your mental capital. And I would say I actually in- enjoy the pitches where there's lots of pushback because that means there's a lot for me to learn or does something I just don't I haven't seen it yet that I haven't factored initially in my process. I, I think it's part and parcel. You're going to miss a lot of winners. You're going to pitch a lot of losers. Ultimately, you still make net positive for your recommendations. And that's the ultimate goal. And, you know, I'm a firm, I'm a firm follower of the biographies and war stories of the successful managers out there. Like I have, you know, my handful of favorites and legends I look I look up to. And I, you know, I follow them, I read their biographies, I listen to their interviews. And time and time again, they've had lots of blow-ups, they've had lots of misses. And that just shows that even the best of the best have a similar problem. And the key takeaway is at the very least, you're getting good feedback and you're growing your li- your mental library. Both compound over time. So you, you spoke um, before that on uh, you know the use of data and the integration yeah. that that everything's happening. Just one last point about the buy side uh, and analysis on it. Mm-hmm. What type of career opportunities do you see existing and emerging within the next ten years that really just don't exist today? Hmm. In the buy side, you mean? Sure. In the buy side, the sell side, mm-hmm. overall capital yeah. market space. I would say it's not it's not entirely new, but it's more of the evolution of the current roles. Because you know, for better or worse, if you're an investor, it's not really a unless you know you've come to still maintain and grow your operator mindset. It's not really a laterally transferable skill. It's not like you know you're you're an accountant, then ultimately you can work as a controller or a risk manager. But you know, if your job is day in day out following the market, it's hard to transfer that elsewhere. I mean, I would be happy to find someone who's able to do that. But usually, if you really invest your career into being an investor, you know, whole, you know, you you tend to stick in asset management. So right now, it's more of the roles evolving, taking more into the consideration of all these, you know, the rise of data, the rise of analytics in our world. And just like before, that fundamental analysis was good old, yeah, look at balance sheet. How's the balance sheet ratio? How's the return on capital? Can they grow that for the next two years? That's good. That kind of approach creates alpha. Now you need to go to the next step of like, oh, okay, I need to monitor all these alternative data, all these instances that are happening every day and just you know learn how to manipulate all that information all these signals, you know, uh, credit card data, that's, you know, everyone almost has that social media data, mm, uh, transcript, you know, NLP, right? People, you know, there's a lot of products out there that show how a manager, how a ma- how management sounds during an earnings call or for an industry conference. And, you know, there are those, you know, technologies that help you gauge this, does, does the manager really sound bullish? Is he just anxious? All that stuff. Yeah, there's so many evolutions out there that I think will be part of the fundamental analyst's tool belt. And yeah, another part, like before, technical analysis. 
back in the 80s, you know, if you read the history, good old chart drawing, charting makes a lot of money. I mean, that's just one input now. Technical analysis was folded into the fundamental analysis tool belt. And I would argue that's the same for analytics and data. I hope that answers your question. That does. That's really great. We're, we're in a new age right now. We're in COVID. Yep. Um, yep. Work from home has emerged from it. So just in that, to talk a little bit about work from home, aside from taking 10 months to find a working headset for Skype calls, what have <laughs> been the biggest challenges of doing investment analysis and your job yeah. from home? I would say it's the discussion with peers that has been hard because before... You know, you can always have like these ad hoc interactions and, you know, debates about a certain decision or a certain company. It's harder to find those ad hoc discussions with my peers uh, as opposed to before. And then look, meeting people, meeting people in real life before I met a lot of Southside guys and management in person. And that really helped me get a sense of who they are. I mean, because if you invest in a company, you're technically partnering with a management, right? It's just different. I mean, we can have as many Zoom calls as we want, but it, it just won't be the same. And then there are also, you know, field trips before where you check out the company's assets. And those are out of reach for now. So I would say those have been the biggest challenges. And, you know, you rely so much on just written data, on written points. And everyone has that. <laughs> everyone has access to the same report to the same filings, right? It's really trying to find that edge while you're uh, while you're in your chair at home. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So yeah. just con- continuing on that, can you tell us a little bit about your workday during COVID? Do you find your most productive hours of the day are 10 p.m. to midnight? And, and kind of what do you do to relax? It varies, really. Uh, sometimes I'm best when it's like the start of the day, 8 to 10. Sometimes, you know, I slow down in the afternoon or, you know, really ramp up in the afternoon. Or sometimes I just find like, oh, I think this is an interesting thread on a company. I'll, I'll follow it. And I'll end up working on that until 10 p.m. And that's fine for me. I mean, that's one thing I learned about this job is because it just it doesn't even feel like work for me, honestly, because I really enjoy the the research process. You know, I'm a mixed bag. Uh, before I was a, such a, I was more of a morning lark more than anything. I like waking up early, but now I'm a bit messed up as ever the shoe with a lot of, most of us are. And what I do to relax you know, I've always been a bookish and you know geeky person. So I read a lot of books, not just investing or business books, but also novels, short stories, poetry. I play video games more now. Uh, I, I justify playing video games because, I, I, hey, it's part of the research, right? You're following video game companies. <laughs> it's processing. Yeah. I know, I know. It, it, yeah. it, it's due diligence. And right now I've actually been trying out, I've been trying out Unity software. It's yeah. not for work, but I've been trying it, you know, because I'm interested in the company. Uh, I, I'm trying to design my own cart, my own racing game <laughs> with Unity. It's actually, I don't know if you guys have tried it. It's it's very accessible and it's so user-friendly. I'm like, oh my God, there's something here. But I mean, it's not like, I'm not saying it's easy to design a video game, but the way to get started, they make it very intuitive how to set up the arena, how to create the characters, the rules for the video game. So that's what I've been working on on the side now. <laughs> Do you see the increased flexibility in capital markets persisting past COVID? That's actually a very good question. I would say it really depends on the team's culture. It's a bit harder for sell side because you're expected to work market hours. You know, be in the morning call by seven, have your morning notes ready by eight, send it out before market open, and pay attention to the markets until market close and write up on the 
right up on the um, day's developments around five or six, right? Uh, for buy side, it's a bit more flexible, always has been, but it's, you know, uh, uh, until it's earnings season that you really always have to be on top of the latest developments because earnings season is like a chain of the, you know, chain of news releases that feed into each other. Like let's say, I don't know, I'm just using this as an example, um, uh, Nike releases earnings, but then next week Under Armour or Adidas releases, then what, what can Nike say that will impact Ulta or Adidas? So uh, I would think it's it won't be, there would be a, some shifts into our time, but it won't be as big. That's my bet. It's really awesome. And then I guess just one last point about that. Um, you know, you talked about the overall flexibility of the potential, especially on the buy side. Do you see potential culture change uh, even when there's there's a return to normal? Uh, and, and how would you see that playing out if you do? I think the biggest would be more Zoom calls. <laughs> more Zoom calls to meet management, to just meet people, to meet analysts. Because before there was like a lot of marketing trips made by executives, management, and analysts. I can see a lot of that getting ported to Zoom calls for better or worse. Pivoting a little bit to revisit your investing philosophy, what is yeah. your, like just from high level, what is your investment philosophy and approach personally? I'm coming from, uh, and this is, again, this is all my all my own personal investment philosophy. It doesn't reflect my team's philosophy, though I've been influenced by my teammates among several other investors. Like with most people, I stand on the shoulders of giants and the people who've come before me. And I'm coming, and how I approach about investment philosophy is from the perspective of an institutional investor. Obviously, when you're investing for yourself or for your own family's money, I think it pays to think differently. So I imagine I'm a portfolio manager or I run money in an institutional setting. So that's where I'm coming from. So in general, my investment philosophy really centers on finding companies that could compound earnings through time. And how how you do that is essentially a function of return on capital or your growth run rate. So that's why a lot of the companies I follow or I'm interested in are secular growers or they have a large runway to grow. And that's mostly found in software, digital media, digital consumer payments, some healthcare, and maybe renewable energy. Not so much in their traditional sectors, but that doesn't mean there aren't any investments there that can compound earnings through time. And I think that's bulk of how I think of how I would approach my portfolio, 60 to 80%. And I think that I can generate alpha by looking for turnarounds or cyclical companies. But uh, that's a skill I really want to learn more, but that's not my focus. And I think from coming from an institutional investor, you really have to ask yourself, what's your value add to your clients? Why should they give you money? Because to be brutally honest, the investment management space is pretty crowded. There's a lot of funds out there, a lot of, you know, the industry is very interesting and economically rewarding. That's why it's attracted a lot of smart folks. So you really need to ask yourself, like, what's your value add here as with most things in life? And really the game selection process for me is to just find, is to add value through analytical or behavioral advantages. Not so much on informational because there's so many hedge funds or other funds out there employing data scientists or paying up for satellite data or credit card data or other forms of alternative data. So 
I, I don't think I can compete in the short term for the most part. So I need to focus on the midterm or long term. And it's going back to my focus on companies that can compound value through time. And that's mostly as like a quality slash growth tilt, if you want to be factor basis about it. And then here and there, you can participate in, as mentioned, turnarounds or maybe some arbitrage, but that's not as in merger arbitrage or special situations, but that's really my flavor. And how I would construct a portfolio, I think it pays to be sector diversified and factor diversified. And what I mean by factor diversified is I think people, there's been a trend over the past two decades in finance that, oh, I'm a growth investor. I'm a value investor. I'm a quality investor. I think there's room for all of those things in a portfolio. But of course, in my case, I think having a quality focus is my anchor or a secular grower focus is my anchor. Because the way I think about it is that if all if 100% of your book are growth stocks or something ARC investments would create, then if interest rates go up 1% or 2%, then you're going to get out, you're going to have a hard time sleeping. On the other hand, if you have like mostly Graham or traditional Warren Buffett, very value, deep value kind of things, those things also tend to be factor correlated or they just they could go wrong at the same time. And that's the last thing you want as an investor is for majority of your book to go wrong at the same time. Because I think more and more, other than just your analytical framework, you should also think about your behavioral framework. And I think it pays to be diversified from a factor lens and a sector lens as well. So was that like a similar approach that you took to your time in Quoth, like when you were with the, what was then special situations now called thematic and during your time as CIO, was it a similar approach that you were taking? Not actually. I think I've developed more over time. In Quaff, it wasn't as refined. I was a firm believer that if you find an attractive market, like let's say social media or digital media, like social media apps, video games, other apps like Match Group that have a long runway ran by great operators, then you can make money. But what I've come to learn over time is there can be a price that's too high to pay for these companies. Number one, valuations do matter. And number two, it pays to pay attention to other pockets of the market, be it cyclical turnarounds or underloved companies. When you talked about the ability to sleep at night and like making sure that your portfolio is diversified in that way, that's something yeah. that made sense because that's a bit of an issue that we're having right now with cloth is because we've, we've been able to like realize some of our gains on investments yeah. that did really well. But now there's like some that we still had, such as my, my biotech holdings that have turned on us and we're left with a, we have a ton of cash that now we're trying to execute on new investments, but all the investment pitches that we have are for companies that have started to go into that side of the market that is getting turned on. So we're kind of stuck with like, well, what do we do? I think, and that's why I'm pretty happy that Quaff overall is growing and we're tapping into other other programs. It's because diversity of thought makes a great investment team. Like if you look at the investment team of that have really succeeded and CFA actually has an interesting uh, article about this, like the top traits of a high-performing investment team. Diversity of thought really matters because you don't want to just have one voice because if within, the, within your team, you're just a bunch of yes-men who follow the consensus, then you guys will be wrong, <laughs> like unilaterally. So I think Quaff is taking a good step towards that, bringing other people from other disciplines, other programs into the fold. With respect to looking for other investments, I think I'm a firm believer that uh, I think there's value in both being a generalist and a specialist, but within a team, there should be, not everyone should be a software analyst or an internet analyst as 
interesting or as appealing as those sectors are, even I'm drawn to internet as a sector. But when you look at banks or healthcare and within those, or even consumer, within those sectors, there's a lot of value or traditional companies that are really leveraging all these technologies. And it pays to pay attention to these sectors. Like for example, in consumer discretionary, brick and mortar retail, a sector once thought left for dead are actually, I think, the ones who've made it through COVID are much stronger now. Case in point, like L Brands, which owns Victoria's Secret and Bath and Body Works, and Tapestry, which owns Coach and Kate Spade. Like these are traditional brick and mortar, like things that you see at the malls. But now they've leveraged all these AI, all these omni-channel, and they're really showing a much better fundamental profile. And same thing for healthcare, like all these like traditional insurers or health providers. They're leveraging all these technologies that are produced by those secular growers. So I think, yeah, you leverage that diversity of people and look into pockets of the market that were thought to be value because companies like right now there's a lot of smart people in the world and they're probably using all these technologies that was used against them and now they're leveraging that and i guess the third thing i would say is i think emerging markets could be an interesting pocket of opportunity now especially as the world is emerging out of covid in in a staggered fashion where north america us canada and pockets of europe are really leading the fold but at some point india brazil would catch up and there, there's an opportunity for alpha so i like what you said about finding yourself with people who think differently and uh, yeah. i don't know if you learned very much about uh, us history but president lincoln he always did that he always surrounded himself with rivals and people who disagree with him so that he would get more diversity of thoughts like i don't know if that was the intention like if he used those words but it was something along those lines yeah Yeah, no and lincoln has a way with words Uh, i feel like i haven't read him enough i'm a a churchill fanboy but (laughs) i know uh lincoln has a lot of great writings i didn't know i didn't know he said about that but yeah i think heard of the book team of rivals team of rivals no you might like it it it's about lincoln okay there's actually a couple of interesting books i don't know if you're into history you are into history right i am i am into history there's a couple of books around that time there was like killing lincoln there was oh there there was a couple of books that i read like sequentially and they all dealt with different aspects of the same story no yeah. that's good uh lincoln i haven't explored him enough i'm uh in terms of u.s presidents i like roosevelt and eisenhower but mm. yeah i think lincoln the founding fathers in general is an era is an era i want to explore more but <laughs> so many Are so many interesting things roosevelt's and what was the other one they mentioned roosevelt and eisenhower I haven't actually read anything about eisenhower dwight eisenhower um what he's famous for this eisenhower matrix like you know that two by two matrix, like important, not important, urgent but not urgent, and you plot your oh. activities. He created that. I like, I yeah. only know that from the book Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Yeah, obviously there are lots of smart people in history have you know applied similar frameworks, but that's that you know two by two framework, urgent, not urgent, important, not important. It's credited to Eisenhower, the mm-hmm. Eisenhower decision matrix. I'm kind of just curious if you don't mind me picking your brain on this. Um, For companies that are in like tech, data, cloud, those types of industries, how do you value them? Like on a fundamental basis, if they're new out of the gate, like I guess for healthcare, it's a little not easy per se, but like, you know, you can get, you know, what are the incident rates? What are the growth rates of the diseases? And so you can kind of project it out and bring it back. How do you do that for tech and cloud? 
So personally, how I think about that and how I've you know evolved about that, given you know I'll take the prevailing cost of capital uh, right now, and I really look at it from a unit economics perspective. So one example I would use is like let's say Match Group. Which owns a bunch of dating websites. So there's like you know you can find the TAM. I know TAM has become more of a controversial word now. You know, total addressable market because it's used willy nilly by a lot of pundits, even me, I would say. But you know, you find the ultimate market price. You you compute how much of that market that that company can win and how much economics it can extract from that market profitably because that's ultimately the only way you can create value is you know you make sure your customers also get value from you so like let's say there are 500 million singles in the world and they're willing to pay up uh, i don't know hypothetical number 10 dollars for your dating app per month and it costs you 5 dollars to run that profit you know in a steady state and you slap that into your you know terminal or you know future cash flows and see how it shakes out and i would say that's just one that's just that's the part of how to value it the other question is when to get in and for me it's a question of can the company surprise to the upside or is there something underappreciated by the market that i think okay if i try if i try to run the numbers the price right now is saying they're only going to get 300 million customers and though they will only pay $8 for their dating websites, right? And that for me, because I believe they can get the 500 million customers paying at $10 ultimately, because I trust their product, I trust their execution, and I would bet that, that they, they can reach that. So I will take that bet. I will invest in that company. Uh, I'm a bit agnostic to personally, not saying how I, I'm like this on my team, but I'm a bit agnostic to paying up for multiples when I know there's a bigger price to be one down the road. And it's still largely underappreciated by the market right now. And management has shown itself to generate optionality or upward surprises later on, because that's what really creates like a margin of safety in my view. So yeah. then is that sort of how you valued Bumble? Can you tell us more about that? Look for the look where they are now in the next five years, next seven years. How fast can they grow? Or how are they growing? What does that mean to their unit economics? And by unit economics, like how much one user costs and how much one user can generate in dollars for you. And you know, you plug in your fixed costs, sales and marketing, R and D down the line, and then your capital expenditures, and you come up with your free cash flow and you and then you discount them. In the terminal state, you know, look at the big price that they can win, like the TAM. It go it really goes back to the TAM for me. Wherein how much can they get of that market and what's their best economics? And if you discount that, does it still make sense to pay up at this price? Because I, w- I would bet that if you try to do a simple terminal growth rate, terminal discount rate calculation, it'll be synonymous with that, you know, ultimate TAM approach that I'm trying to espouse right now. But I'm not I'm not saying I don't do the traditional way. It really depends on a company case by case. But I really focus on the unit economics. Because for the longest time, Amazon was at running at profitable unit economics. People just didn't know it. It's just that it, people have been just been like, you know, slandering it because, yeah, they're unprofitable. Walmart's going to take over. They're going to lose Sears eventually. No, but no, it's because they're constantly reinvesting in the company. But if you look at it on a per, per prime customer basis, they've been making money since the late 2000s. Given the view on the current markets, how can you possibly justify owning a stock like Datadog in this inflationary environment? Datadog. Ah, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, I think look for upcoming investments. Uh, I wouldn't start with idea generation because ideas can come from 
literally anywhere. But once I'm interested by an investment, I tend to look for a couple of things. Top of mind would be a great unit economics in the sense that what they do on a per unit level, be it on a per delivery, per click, per unit, per box, per retail box, does it make economic sense? Like, is it sustainable? And that's the first one. Number two is like runway for growth. And number three is like the management and can they execute on that? Can they harness this business model and create value in that market they're addressing? Are they the right people for that? When it, when it comes to valuing stuff like Datadog, in general, I'm pretty much a fundamentalist when it comes to valuing things. I believe that uh, any company can be valued by a DCF because present value of any security is the cash it's going to generate for its holders. But for stuff like hyper growth stuff, I would project that usually you project five years, probably 10 years out, given that these are companies early in their growth cycle. The tricky part, number one, is you should be thoughtful in your forecasting. And what I mean by that is that a lot of investors or participants in the market, and myself included, sometimes they just defer to applying rule of thumb growth rate growth rates. Like, oh, this company will grow 40% in year one, 30% in year two, 20% in year three, without fully understanding how the market will evolve over time, how their units will evolve over time. So I think you need to be thoughtful in your forecasting and forecast it on a per unit basis, like how many stores, how many deliveries, how many units, or for e-commerce companies, how many merchants can they have on their platform and how many gross merchandise value can those merchants generate over time. And the tricky part, for growth investing is really the terminal value because for growth investing, I think at the very least, two thirds of your cash flow would come from the terminal value. And how I think about the, the market, how it will evolve, I would look for analogs. Markets like this, like let's say a medical device company or a retail subsegment, ultimately they will have a couple of winners, like three or five winners. So let's just say, let's assume for this company, they're going to have one fifth or 20% market share. So let's assume at the very terminal, at the terminal stage, they will have 20% of this market. They will have this per unit ARPU or pricing. This is their COGS and this is how, this is their margins. And then I will just forecast it that way and then discount it back. And obviously this is a very dynamic process. Each quarter, you will see more clues as to how much, how their pricing could evolve, how their market could evolve. So that's why growth investing is very dynamic. It's not, it's not steady state because if you're looking into a market with large runway to grow or to grow into, then there's bigger uncertainty, but obviously bigger reward uh, as it unfolds. And yeah, you would look for a terminal multiple that's attributable to a business at that stage, at that maturity stage. Look for analogs. Like uh, a lot of businesses, you can look for similar precedents in the past and you can apply similar multiples or margin assumptions. That's how pretty much I think about growth investing. The big thing for growth investing is number one, on the downside, competition can come in very quickly. So you need to watch out for that because you think this company will have 50% of a very big market, but now the prospects for that are much lower. But on the upside, some companies create their own optionality or their new ventures for growth. Like think of Amazon. Amazon, I know Amazon's a one-off, once in a generation company, but Amazon was able to create AWS from being a mostly a bookstore retailer. And even from its e-commerce roots, it started from bookstores to DVDs and electronics. So optionality is something worth thinking about for growth investing. And I would, I would really recommend this book called Engines That Move Markets. It's a relatively long book. It's roughly 500 pages. It chronicles the different stages of, in, of, of growth investing. It started from the railroad days and the industrial revolution in, in America. Fun fact, railroads were considered technology back in the day. 
and they were. And then it chronicled and it showed how like the stock prices of these railroad companies actually mirror the stock price movements of all these sexy software companies today. And same thing for radio companies back in the 20s, 30s. Chemical companies post-World War II were a big growth industry. And then TV and then cable and then internet. And then now there's so many things. So you know what they say, right? History doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme. And I would say that how companies evolve through their S-curve rhymes with other technologies in the past. History doesn't repeat, but it rhymes? Yeah, history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. That's by Mark Twain. What do you mean that it rhymes? It rhymes. Like, similar notes. Oh, okay. I see. Okay, so it's like, it's similar, but there's small differences, but not big enough that you can't recognize the connection. Yeah, yes, yes. I've never heard of that one before. Yeah, Mark Twain. (laughs) Okay, I like it. For Datadog, like, yeah, I'll forecast it out, see how many how many seats they could sell, how many, I don't know, what's their target market, SMBs or enterprise companies as well, see how that market will evolve, assume how much they can capture. And you mentioned that you were looking at a diabetes company, like a company that was making... Glucose monitors. Glucose yeah. monitors, right. With both of those, I'm just currently looking at one of one of my models, looking at my terminal value, yeah. and like, it's not actually too high, but... Because I think that like one thing that I was incorporating into my thought process for my model was that if someone cures Alzheimer's completely, this yeah. company is going to be worth actually nothing, like zero. Like, yeah. Essentially, yeah. like all that you have left is their their net assets, like or sorry, their their yeah. net debt, which like they've prepaid stuff. So it's like there might be some value left there. Other than that, something like worth zero. Is that something that you're also kind of incorporating into your model and? If someone were to ask you about that, so like if you present your model to a client, how do you explain to them that it could be worth zero if someone cures diabetes? Yeah, that's funny because I actually told my teammate that like if they cure the underlying disease this company is trying to help address, then by definition, there's not much use for them, especially in healthcare, mostly in healthcare, but this logic applies to other almost all industries, right? And that's really the risk in investing. And that's why equities really offer much higher returns compared to other asset classes because greater risk, greater reward. And in terms of like how to factor that in, I think there's two ways to think about it, um, risk and uncertainty. And uncertainty is inherent in investing. And there's the known known knowns and known unknowns. There's the known unknowns. Like you know that this could get cured, but you don't know. It's unknown when or if it's even possible. And then the unknown unknowns such as COVID-19. But obviously, obviously every I think pandemic would become a known unknown for everyone at this point. But yeah, something like some catastrophe that would cause a lot of distress for everyone. So I think our job as investors is to contemplate as much as possible the known unknowns And for the unknown unknowns, then I think really I gain comfort in just the people behind the company. That's why it pays to really invest, partner with managers who are honest, who are proven capabilities to really pilot the company. So that's for uncertainty. For risk, risk is mostly a function of price in the sense that if you buy the stock at a higher price, then theoretically, the most you can lose is from, let's say, $300 to zero because the lower bound of equities is zero. So that's that's how you, you would think about them. And I know it sounds too much of an armchair question, but I think 
that's just part of investing in some of these companies. And you could have looked at radio advertising before the internet. It's probably not in anyone's model that these radio companies could go to zero or like penny stock territory. That's just, I guess that's just part of it. That's why it pays to constantly watch your, your investments. Yeah, that makes sense. For most of what you do, do you do mostly DCFs? And the reason why I'm asking this is because I've looked at a lot of different research reports. Research yeah. reports seem to gravitate towards multiples. And yeah. um, when I asked one of the analysts why, he said that investors understand multiples. They don't always understand DCF. And so if you use an approach that's equally weighted between a DCF, a multiple, and another multiple, they're going to be a little confused. So he said that yeah. he typically just goes with multiples, but he always starts with doing a DCF and then he does multiple after and then uses that for the report. Yeah, I can see the reasoning for both DCF and multiples. And if you really, if you really think about think about this academically, multiples are shorthand for DCF. A lot of smart professors and practitioners have stated that, and I, I agree with them. And you know, if you go back to your MFIN or your CFA, you can use the Gordon Growth Equation to derive any multiple, right? And the Gordon growth model by itself is actually a long form way of DCF or dividend discount model, which is a fat, which is a function of the of a DCF. That's the backdrop. And going back to your first question, why investors gravitate toward multiples? I think it's become a, and this is my own view, it becomes it it became a circular effect where investing or you know, quote unquote Wall Street or Bay Street is largely short term um, in the sense that how is this quarter panning out? What's the forward one year lookout? And People just appreciate that shorthand. Okay, it's simple. Like, okay, 17 times they're gonna generate three dollar EPS by next year. Great. That's that's that that's my valuation for a company. But then I think you all as an investor, you need to pay attention to how multiples trade over time because that's where the stock will trade in the short term, the marginal buyer. And then that could be your source of opportunities too. Because if the multiple gets, you know, derated by a short-term blip, then that's your time to buy as a long-time investor. On the other hand, if the multiple gets way ahead of himself, such as a lot of these COVID stocks like Zoom, Peloton, that's the time to sell these things. But ultimately, you, I think you need both in your arsenal to make thoughtful investments over a cycle. Yeah. Looking back to what you were saying earlier about some um, company fraud, like you know Enron, Briax. No. What are some other company fraud, like just interesting stories that you can tell us about? You're mentioning Luck and Coffee the last time that we saw. Oh yeah, Luck and Coffee. Yeah, so Luck and Coffee. That 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 was a lesson that they never had to pay up for, because <laughs> Luck and Coffee was it, it IPO'd like 2018, 2019, mm-hmm. and it's it was like a darling growth stock in China. It was supposed to be the Starbucks of China. They were taking on Starbucks in China and they were backed by a lot of the investors I admire, a lot of the big hedge funds I follow, some sub, some big sovereign wealth funds. So, you know, the big leagues, right? And then it turns out that they've mastered how to create a narrative for them and like, you know, look at the per paper cup basis. And that's, you know, and I've alluded to unit economics, right? They also used unit economics against investors to mislead investors that, hey, we have positive unit economics. Yeah, on a per paper cup basis, we're very profitable. Look at our growth rates. And you know, the stock reached, I think it IPO that like less than 10, it reached 50 at its peak. But then I think first quarter of 2020, it was found out that they were misstating their financials. And there was a short sellers who've done like they, they did some really interesting big data work on that. Like there was like a short seller that installed a lot of cameras in their kiosks and then they tracked like, does it really add up to the math that they're alluding to? 
And then they interviewed workers, you know, to get a sense of that they're really selling. But it turns out they were just manipulating all these KPIs that investors would salivate over. Like, you know, you know, a lot of us like, oh, look, their subs are growing or poo is growing, right? And they've learned how to game that. But that was a fraud ultimately. Uh, I was I was thinking of investing my personal money into that. Thankfully, I didn't because now it's zero. It's a zero. The mistakes that you don't quite make, those are always yeah. the best ones to learn from. Yeah, oh. it's always the opposite for me. It's always, oh, I shouldn't have won in something and now it's, now it's <laughs> yeah. zero dollars. Yeah, yeah. Oh, diamond hands, where did they go? Diamond hands. <laughs> it's buried oh, underground. These, 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 are, these are, I don't know, what's, what's weaker than paper? These are like feather hands. <laughs> yeah, feather hands. Oh, man. So how um, might your view be different than someone that has just a typical financial background? How yeah. might your view be different on companies like, you know, Luck and Coffee and Ron Briex? Do you think that maybe you're looking at some things that other people might be missing? Well, I, I, I'm not claiming that I, I spotted them. I just followed their stories, right? But in general, I go back to uh, the simple question is like, what would make the stock go up? And what are the key debates on a stock? Because I mean, fine, there are good and bad companies and there could be good and bad stocks, but a good stock is really, uh, or a good stock trade, you can ask what will make the stock go up or go down? And usually those are two to three key debates. And like, let's say a more simple example, I would say is Disney. Is Disney is, can they hit their subscriber numbers quicker than anticipated? And why? And number two, what will what? How will their parks business evolve after COVID? And why? And if you can formulate a view on that and support that view, and that I then and I think that would help you create a profitable bet. And I think yeah, Disney has a great product. The market right now is underestimating how much the brand is loved beyond North America. Uh, I mean, I grew up in Asia, and everywhere Disney was still you know. It was like the pinnacle of children's entertainment and entertainment in general is such a great brand. So there's there the current sub numbers were still highly underestimated. And their parks, interestingly, if you look at their development, apparently they can maximize margins now given that they can improve their cost structure and they've discontinued their annual passes so that they can increase their ARPU too. So yeah, I would say if you can a good analyst can take in all those information and distill it to the key two to three debates that will really move the stock. What's your favorite Disney character? What's my favorite Disney character? Uh, oh man, I have a lot. But I would say it's Hector Barbosa from Pirates of the Caribbean. Nice. I really love. I really love that. Oh, nice. <laughs> I also like Scrooge McDuck. <laughs> yeah. Um, for for I, those sorry. at home, I, I made my background the photo of Scrooge McDuck Scrooge jumping McDuck. into his uh, <laughs> pool of gold. Pools of gold. Yeah. That's the best kind of pool. This comes from the yeah. summer. Yeah, um, I feel like it would hurt. I know, I know. It's not, it's not liquid. <laughs> Have you seen the new Mulan? Yes. It's quite a bit disappointing. <laughs> I would say I miss, I prefer the old Mulan. I miss Mushu. I really miss yeah. Mushu. <laughs> I was quite upset that they cut out Mushu. So you are very renowned for your market observations and especially your hot takes. Which investors, writers, media pundit do you admire and model yourself after? So yeah, so the investors I admire would be Stephen Mandel, uh, Steve Mandel of Lone Pine Capital and Bill Miller of Miller Value Partners. So Steve Mandel was a tiger cub. It was like a you know from a group of legendary fundamental investors in New York, and they're really just like deep fundamental research. And his approach and their approaches is you know that's how I've been trying to model myself after. And so and Bill Miller, same fundamental guy, and one of the you know hot takes that I've come to 
you know really internalized from him is that being more bullish than the than consensus is in itself a, a contrarian action because if people think it's going to go to 30 but you think it's going to go to 50 that by in itself is contrarian so sometimes most people average down on a stock that you know they buy the dip sometimes you, you should buy the pop because that means there's more to come from that pop and i also like how bill miller is a philosophy phd Uh, he was from a non-conventional background too, and you know, I just see myself in there a bit more liberal arts background, and that just shows that people from different kinds of backgrounds can be successful investors. Uh, in terms of pundit, uh, I don't know who are the who are the hot takes that I like. Uh, Kramer, Kramer is like every, every is like a man for every man, and I, I I like what he's doing. Sometimes yes, he says controversial things, but I think Kramer overall uh, tries to really help out the everyday investor. So Kramer is my main market pundit. I don't like the other CNBC Bloomberg guys because usually they're talking their own book. <laughs> and yeah, writers. I don't know if you want to get into that, but I have my own preferred novelists and all that stuff. Yeah. We can share book lists after. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like I have the same question as Brenna, but yeah. just talk about someone outside of finance that you really look up to. I really admire, uh, you know, two key people. They're from Asia. I really admire Lee Kuan Yew, the Prime Minister of Singapore. I think he's such a strong leader, strong man. And I know he's not. He's he's a flawed person, and he also has his controversies. But what he has been able to do as a leader and essentially lead uh, a backwater. You know, a swamp backwater full of mosquitoes, and it was like a center of the heroin trade before into Southeast Asia's shining star that a lot of a lot of countries and world leaders really look up to. It's such a, it's such, it's just something I think would have been fictitious unless it until it's been done. Let's say because it really took such a lot of courage and determination to lead that nation to where it is now. Yeah, so I would say Lee Kuan Yew is one that I really admire. That's awesome. It's kind of towards the 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 wrapping up um, part of this. Yeah. You know, all in all, we spoke a lot about um, your education. We spoke about your professional experience. What do you consider to be your greatest professional achievement thus far? Well, so far, I think it's you know being contributing to my team. You know, here at Scotiabank's Public Equity Investments, I think uh, you know being a good student with them, student of the markets with them, and growing with them. I would say just you know making. You know, still producing outperformance, not just financially, but you know, holistically through COVID and through all the challenges we've been through, has been quite a success for me. Because I never would have imagined before that you know I'll be helping out a high-performing team manage such a, such through you know a biblical event, <laughs> like a, a once-in-a-lifetime event, right? So I would say that's one. Here's hoping. Yeah, here's hoping. <laughs> We're almost there. there. Um, and, and then just a little on that. Any final thoughts to, to share with us, and, and any plans down the road you care to share as well? I'll share with you what I usually tell people if they're interested in this in a career in asset management. So, like really ask yourself if you find interest or passion in trying to understand the world and companies, and trying to allocate money into companies that will thrive in our changing world. And it's a very intellectually and economically stimul, you know. Rewarding field, but it's also competitive. So make sure you're passionate about the work and you're passionate about the competition because the work the work brings a lot. It helps you learn the world constantly. 
you partner with a lot of very intelligent people and you debate with a lot of intelligent operators and no other field offers as much of that as in investing. And then the second part, it's, it's a really competitive field. You need to make sure that you're, you find your edge or your benefit over you know, other market participants because if you can't, then you know, ultimately you won't have capital to allocate. <laughs> so just think about that and really ask yourself, is this a kind of you know, career path? Uh, I'd pursue because if you do, then yeah, I welcome you. It's I, I really love it here. And yeah, key takeaways for you guys. I mean, keep you know, keep doing what you guys are doing. This has been great. Uh, just being able to chat with you guys have been good, and hearing about the other Quaff alumni stories has been very rewarding in itself. And Quaff has been such a cornerstone in my career here in Canada. So you know, more power to the group. <laughs> Here's to the next hundred thousands of AUM for Quaff. Yes, yes, yes. Here's if all goes to plan. Here's here's hoping. One last question for Jeremy. I would say that Jeremy has been kind of one of the most helpful alumni from kind of like the Queen's Mass MFIN program. Like he's always coming back um, mm-hmm. to give talks. Like even pre-COVID, he's always giving the thematic advice. Um, I remember like a year and a half ago he set a meeting with me, Steph and Sean and others. And he was like drawing on a whiteboard on like quality value, what both. And typically you don't see that from alumni. Like once they get their job, they're like out of here, you know, like they don't keep coming back. Yeah. They're gone. They disappear. Like what makes you kind of give back in that kind of way? Is there someone that helped you in your career to get to where you are? Because it's pretty rare that someone devotes this much time to give back. You know, I give back because uh, I think I really, I still, you know, I, I want to give back and help students that were in, that were me a couple of, that, 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 that's in a similar spot like me, you know, right now. And I think it helps, you know, grow the network of Quaff alumni who ultimately, you know, find a rewarding career in asset management here in, you know, Bay Street here in Canada and hopefully beyond. So it's just giving back to the community. And it's hard for me to pinpoint, uh, you know, the key person. It, in general, a person is made, is, you know, is successful because of a lot of people behind him or her. But I would say uh, I really think Sean Cleary because ultimately Sean Cleary, who's the, you know, the director of the program, he referred me to my boss right now. I, re- I remember that it was it was uh, it was out of nowhere. It was like a typical networking event. I wasn't expecting much of it. I was really yeah. I'll join in, chat with people, get free drinks and free food, and leave. <laughs> but you know, Sean really he he introduced me to my current boss now, and that's been paid off. You know, numer you know uh, uncountable dividends. And the second one would be. Uh, going back in my time will be Reese, Reese Barnett. He's uh he's the advisor of Quaff. And the funny thing is that I also had a similar uh, I I remember always peppering him with questions about the street, about how it is to market. Like, can you help introduce me to this person? Um, what do you think of this idea? What do you think of this trend? And he's always available, and whenever he can, he will answer my questions. And he's been a you know good friend to hang out with. And funny enough, um, I actually recorded a podcast with him, but we never published it. I don't know if I have a copy of that. Because, oh my God, can you please pass this on to us? Because you, you, you guys succeeded in what I tried to do with my class. I, I wanted to have like a quarterly publication, like a video, you know, a digital publication where we'll interview practitioners. Like one guy was interviewing a risk manager. One guy was interviewing like a you know, fund of funds allocator. 
and I was interviewing Respawnet. It's like you know our uh, keynote feature for our first ever, but it never really took off. I guess uh, I, I wasn't that strong of a leader, and and like Alex here, <laughs> I don't know. I'll look for it now that you mentioned. I, I should look for it. It's my old files. Let me look for it. <laughs> it's funny that you mention it because I have biweekly meetings with Reese, and yeah. so tomorrow morning I was gonna be like, so can we get you on the on the list at some point? Yeah. So we're going to be moving in now to one of the uh, the fan favorites, so to speak. <laughs> oh, okay. And this is the rapid fire questions. For all who can't tell, we have Zubair clapping um, <laughs> and, and really just a roaring um, applause from the crowd. So <laughs> if you could try to answer these in about five words or less, we'll, we'll kick them off. Mm-hmm. Sure, sure. Let's do it. All right. What are you the most proud of? I would say surviving Canada. Sur- surviving Canada because my parents were scared. Yeah. Cats or dogs? Cats. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I'm a cat person. I lost a side bet. <laughs> <laughs> Even though I'm year of the dog and people say I have a dog-like personality, I prefer cat. Sorry if that's above five words, but <laughs> I needed to elaborate there. Uh, I like cats. <laughs> love it. Love it. Where is the first place you're going to travel to when you're able to? I would say New York and meet with family in the United States. And because New York is New York. <laughs> Finish this thought. If you were stuck on a desert island. I would find rope for sea turtles. And that's a Pirates of the Caribbean reference for you guys. <laughs> Why is the rum always gone? Why is the rum always gone? <laughs> Hopefully there's like a hidden rum cache in that <laughs> island. Yeah. All right. Well, hey, since we're on this, uh, favorite alcohol? Favorite alcohol? Uh, I am a dirty tequila person. Tequila. Oh. Yeah. Right. I love tequila right. shots. <laughs> I grew up with tequila shots. <laughs> Love it. Yeah, so, yeah. salsa or guacamole? Guacamole. Basic guacay. <laughs> all right, all right. Cupcakes or yeah. muffins? Oh, we, we've had this. Uh, cupcakes. More bang for your buck. Popeyes, Chick-fil-A, or Jollibee? Ooh, I'm sorry. A uh, bit of a... I, I'm failing my nation a bit, my home country a bit, but uh, I, I have to say it's Popeyes. <laughs> I love right. Popeyes. Zubair and I had the same answer. Oh, nice. Popeye's so good, man. Popeye's. So what do you do to unwind other than video games? Yeah, video games. Video Video games games and reading. Bears, Beats, or Battlestar Galactica? Bears, Beats, or Battlestar Galactica. I would say Battlestar Galactica. (laughs) Yeah. Very interesting. Um, And more of the board game. I love the Battlestar Galactica board game. Um, Have you watched The Office? Are you an Office fan? I've watched The Office, but I'm more of a... Community or Superstore fan. (laughs) I'm a big fan of both of those shows. Eat fresh. Yeah, eat fresh. Yes. Yes. Human beings. Human (laughs) beings. Human beings. (laughs) If you could have any superpower, what would it be? I've always thought of this, but uh, I would say it's good old teleportation. Yeah. So I could just teleport wherever teleport out of that desert island we'll see (laughs) (laughs) it has all the rum i know i know after the rum i finished the rum no i should be tequila then i'll teleport out of there (laughs) find the sea turtles (laughs) (laughs) it all comes full circle guys there's a narrative into these rapid fire questions (laughs) and on that what's the last book that you read the last book that i read it's a tale for the time being it's actually it's a it's an interesting novel. It was written by this 
Japanese author based in Vancouver. It's a very complicated novel, but essentially it's written from two perspectives. One is from a diary of a Japanese girl, and the second is from the author's perspective. So it's kind of meta. And then she's trying to figure out what happened to this Japanese girl. And this Japanese girl was in turn talking about her Buddhist grandmother's life and her World War II veteran granduncle's life. So it's you know, it's one of those, like, you know, postmodern, very complicated, but still very interesting kind of novels. And then finally, what are your words to live by? I was thinking about this for the other day. I was drinking rum. <laughs> I was joking. I was, <laughs> I was having a, I was having a cool uh, beer by myself. I was thinking about this the other day because I found that I've been going out of line with my habits. But uh, how we spend our days is how we spend our lives. It's a quote by this poet I follow, Anne Dillard. And it's just a derivative of the, you know, your thoughts become your actions, your actions become your habits, your habits become who you are. And, you know, all these small stuff that we take for granted now, given that, you know, our routines have collapsed, our schedules are out of place. And I find that, you know, it goes, you should really try to steer all those small parts of your life to the direction that you want them to be. I'm not even sure. uh, Sorry for breaking your five words every every question, but (laughs) I'm not as... We'll talk about your literature background. I was about to say, yeah. Yeah, yeah but the thing, yeah, I, I think lost my a, brevity. I think that's a great thought to leave it off on. How we spend our days is how we spend our lives. I enjoyed that. Thanks, Jeremy, for making the time as well. Sure, definitely, yeah, guys. Thank you. This was a lot of fun. We hope you have enjoyed this session of the Quaff Spotlight series. Until next time, be well and invest with intent. I was just going to say, like, you asked his favorite investors, and uh, it didn't include Steve Korash. So oh. <laughs> uh, you, you mentioned another Steve, but not Steve Korash. So uh, i that to Steve. Oh, my God. No. You know, critiquing cough pitches or critiquing equity research reports for class, which one are you more critical of? <sighs> oh, my God. Uh, I would say I'm more critical of like the quaff people. Maybe I'm maybe I'm expecting more from quaff people because like and it's not just like you know for the special sets or no, not, it's not special sets anymore. It's thematic investing people anymore. Like um, when because like you actually pursue that uh, research work. And, you know, I, you, you're signing up for the quaff quality or, you know, quaff experience. So I expect a higher bar than that rather than like, let's say, oh, I'm, uh, I'm in accounting or I'm in, you know, risk management. And, you know, the program, you know, elevates all my skill set, but I'm not really an equity research guy. So, you know, I'll choose a company, I'll apply what I learned and let's see where it goes. Right. Uh, I, have, I have a higher bar for quaff students <laughs> overall. <laughs>